You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. From baseball's top personalities. The great Chris Russo joins us once again. To the game's top players. Joining us is the all-star. Matt Chapman with us. You never know what stories you're going to hear. If you make your way down here, I, I might be able to make some time and go out there and see the great Chris Townsend. This is A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. Welcome to another edition of A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. We got some heavyweight broadcasters coming your way. Chris Mad Dog Russo, the Radio Hall of Famer, who has his own channel on Sirius XM and his own TV show, High Heat, on MLB Network. Jim Bowden, who does everything. ESPN, The Athletic, the former general manager. Eduardo Perez, son of the Hall of Famer Tony Perez, who had his own big league career, and he had a fabulous career in college at Florida State, and now does a great job broadcasting. And we talked to him about broadcasting the KBO. And then also from ESPN, one of the top voices in baseball, Boog Shambi. But whenever I get a chance to have Chris Russo on, I can't say this enough. For my generation, he is the greatest sports talk show host of all time. He's in the the, the real Radio Hall of Fame. This guy in our world is king. And whenever I can get the mad dog on, it's an honor. Here is Chris Russo. Our next guest is very special to us. He's a radio hall of famer and he's considered uh, the greatest sports radio personality of all time. And what he does on Sirius XM and also on the MLB network is wonderful. And Chris, I got to tell you, my subscription was up for my Sirius XM. And because of you and all the guys over at uh, MLB radio on Sirius XM. I definitely renewed. I'm supporting you guys because you guys, you do an unbelievable job. And I can't thank you for all the support you guys have given us over the year here at A's Cast. Uh, glad to do it. I'm glad to see you do that. Very good. MLB radio does a great job. It's uh, anchored by Phillips, Steve Phillips. And, uh, you know, here at Mad Dog, we do the best we can. And obviously, a lot of time to fill right now in the last 10 weeks. Uh, with, uh, you know, not a lot of sports to talk about, and we have essentially basically run a full day's programming. So we're doing the best we can. Sirius is a superb company. They've taken good care of everybody, and uh, maybe down the road here, Chris, we'll get some sports, namely baseball, uh, sometime uh, maybe in early July if we get lucky. So we'll keep our fingers crossed. You know, before we talk baseball, we're coming up on our one-year anniversary, and obviously we've talked about this before. We're the only team – Uh, streaming a live station 24-7. And one of the reasons why we created this and I decided to do this is because I watched your career and I watched you leave Terrestrial Radio and start Mad Dog Radio over at Sirius. I had two years left on my contract. I had a good show. But watching you inspired me to go, you know what, this is something that no one's ever done before. This is something new. And watching you allowed me to do this. Well, that's a good sign if I could have that kind of impact. Uh, You know, I had worked 19 years on terrestrial radio, so I was looking for a little bit of a change. And I was fortunate that Sirius was out there. Plus, I had seven or eight years of Sirius before I got there, you know, led by Stern. So I knew that we were going to be okay as a company. 
Uh, although at times when we first got there, we were really struggling with the merger with uh, XM. But overall, uh, you know, if you take a chance and you get a little lucky along the way and you work hard at it, you know, things could work out. So you took that chance uh, with this streaming broadcast. And although for me, radio is easy. I mean, I enjoy doing it so much that uh, I didn't think the radio aspect of it was a chance. You could argue that the company decision was. I had a good thing going on terrestrial. I was there for a long, long time. But uh, I figured a change wouldn't hurt anybody. And I got lucky along the way. And, of course, the thing you like about Sirius is you can do anything you want. Because, you know, you're not tied into any specific team. So as far as going out there and having the flexibility to do any kind of talk radio sports-wise that you want, you can do. You're not tied in just the Mets, the Yankees, the Giants, Jets, the local team that you are, the town that you, the, and the town that you're in. You can do anything you want, which is uh, one of the reasons why I found it very attractive when I left. You know, I think about uh, a rant you recently had, and they, they put it up on the New York Post about how players, agents, they're just so tone deaf. It's like there's 36 plus million people on unemployment and you guys are going to just fight to the end for every single little dollar. Uh, t tell us why this disturbs you. And you even brought up Scott Boris in, in your rant. Yeah, and I like Boris, but yeah, th th this bothers me. Um, and obviously now we have since found out there was a, <clears throat> excuse me, a smoking gun that the union, when they negotiated this contract with the owners back in March, knew that there was going to be baseball without fans in 2020, that they were going to have to renegotiate, uh, you know, uh, in good faith, as the quote says in the document, uh, regarding, uh, you know, giving the owners a little break uh, from a standpoint of uh, revenue loss. You never 35% uh, every day. Uh, there's no baseball because of no concessions and parking and tickets and suites and all that. And the uh, the player association knew that, and I guess didn't tell its players because you heard Blake Snell, you heard Harper, Kershaw went out on Dan Patrick, Trevor Bauer. You heard a lot of players scream and yell about how there will never be another renegotiation. We negotiated once, and you know, in this day and age, that uh, we don't want negotiation, we want cooperation because you know the sport right now and all sports, they're in a, even the NFL is somewhat desperate to put their product on the field. And although they're going to have to do without fans, they still need to have some cooperation with their labor force to not worry so much about, uh, you know, who's getting paid, but just put a product out on the field to keep the sport up and running. And to sort of, you know, one hand washes the other and to give the fans something to watch. And the players in baseball, you know, were wrapped up in negotiation of what is in it for me. And nobody wants to hear what's in it for you right now. Bottom line is, we need baseball back. Again, as you said, Chris, 36 million unemployed. And this is not the time to quibble over a couple of bucks. This is the time to realize, okay, this is an odd year. Uh, you know, Manfred's not trying to jam down a salary cap with a revenue split. Uh, this is dire, dire times, and it requires dire measures. And the, and the players don't seem to grasp that. Now, in the last four or five days, they've been quiet. Uh, so maybe they will eventually understand that uh, whatever they do, they have to figure out a way to get on the field if they get this health protocol straightened out, which I think they might. And uh, then we can, uh, you know, think about having baseball in July. So I was just annoyed by it. Uh, you know, Tony Clark and Boris and people like that screaming and yelling. It's stupid. People don't want to hear about this right now. And I understand that, uh, you know, and I think overall calmer heads will prevail. 
but it did bother me there earlier in the week. No question about it. No question yeah. about it. No doubt. And the health of the sport long term, if someone like Blake Snell, when we truly have heroes out there and I think about where you are, New York and New Jersey, and you got people, even my producer, Cody, his fiance is a nurse. We've got these people out on the front line, truly risking their lives. They're truly at the front of this. And you got a healthy young baseball player talking about his safety. I mean, talk about tone deaf. Yeah, no, that, you know, Snell said, well, listen, my health is going to be a risk, so I'm not taking a pay cut. Well, hold on now. So, in other words, you're willing to take a pay cut if they pay enough money, but uh, because, you know, to make it worth your while, if it's a health risk and you're not worried about your health long term, then you shouldn't play at all no matter what the money is. So, yeah, right. Very, very uh, silly. I blame it on the association's leaders because they didn't get the message across uh, to their uh, constituency that, guys, you know, this is a different year. We're going to have to understand uh, the plight the sport's in. We're going to have to work together with the owners, no matter how unappealing that might be. And, uh, you know, and furthermore, um, although they never told the players this, we did agree uh, back in March that if it came to the sport without fans, we were going to have to renegotiate that agreement uh, that was made on March 26th. So uh, everything that is done here, um, you know, the Players Association has to understand that this is about putting the sport on the, uh, you know, on the board, on the field, uh, July, August, September, and October, uh, any way they can. Uh, now, listen, I'm not expecting the players to go out there under any circumstances if it's very unsafe. Nobody expects that. Nobody expects anybody to risk their life uh, to catch a virus to play a ball game. Nobody expects that. But if proper protocols are taken taken and it seems like they're working on that and you know these are young athletes you know chances are they're going to be okay you're not going to have no risk but if the risk is low uh you know agree to play and then you can figure out the money down the road so uh you know we'll see how this develops uh, it seems like it's settled down here christopher in the last three four days so maybe calmer heads will prevail i think manford is smart enough to realize that uh, no matter what he does this is part of his legacy he understands that uh, he's got to get sports on board this year, maybe be the sport that brings the country back to a degree um, and, uh, you know, figure out a way to uh, play an 80-something game season. And I think right now I would lean to the idea that he'll be able to do that. So if you ask me right this second on a Friday before Memorial Day, Chris, I would suspect that there would be some sort of baseball there uh, early July. You know, when we were growing up, it was so ridiculous where you had Atlanta, Cincinnati, and Houston in the NL West. And I've always made this joke that if I, if I get on a Southwest flight and I can't get to that town within within under three hours, you shouldn't be in the same division. Good point. And maybe, maybe, just maybe. I mean, like, think about it. We got the Rangers and the Astros in the AL West. It's ridiculous. You're a San Francisco Giant fan. There's no reason they should be in the same division with the Colorado Rockies. So I'm just wondering, maybe, just maybe, I know we got a lot of traditionalists. They have trouble with change. But it's better that the Giants and the A's play each other 19 times or Dodgers uh, taking on the A's 19 times or Angels. I mean, the rivalries in state. Could this be a time we really could 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 look at realignment for the for the first time and really do it right? I uh, listen. Yeah, I think there will be some experimentation. Assuming they play, I don't know if you're going to get into a realignment scenario where you're going to have you know Texas and Houston play in a division with say Colorado, Arizona, 
uh, you know, maybe Atlanta. I, I, I don't think you're going to get that crazy. I think that's a little too complicated right now. Um, you know, they're going to have enough issues just playing a season. Uh, and, you know, uh, to go out there and to realign the sport when they're trying to figure out a way that they can, you know, take batting practice with masks on, uh, I don't think they want to bite off more than they can chew. So I think that is down the road discussion, but I don't know if they're going to get that radical with the realignment in a short season. I think you'll see some experimentation with double headers, seven innings, uh, maybe a guy at second base to start the 10th inning in a tie game, the universal DH. I, I think you'll see things like that, but your radical realignment step, and there is arguments to be made for it. I don't think that they can get into that right now because they've got too many other things they've got to worry about. Their job right now, Chris, is just to put a season together and, you know, to do a radical realignment. Uh, now, they might put Texas and Houston in a different division for one season, but they're not going to do it, you know, they're not going to study it backwards and forwards to get it exactly right because they've got too many other things to worry about. So I think that down the road could occur. I don't think you're going to get full-scale realignment this year. They're going to try to make sure that, you know, they keep the travel, uh, it, you know, condensed. Um, you know, uh, but I still think that Miami and uh, I still think Atlanta will be in the NL East. I think Tampa is going to stay with the, uh, you know, the Yankees and the Red Sox in the AL East. It's not going to be perfect, with, but you do all, you're all going to have the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Orioles and the Mets and the Phillies. I think you have that. They'll play more, but I don't think you're going to have a radical realignment in the divisions. they got too many other things they got to worry about right now, not to put that on the table. Let's end on this. If it's an 82-game season, because in 162 games, people get exposed. Teams get exposed for their weakness. But in 82 games, it's kind of, for the most part, everybody's got a puncher's chance. Uh, how do you see it when, when we get this thing going? How do you see this season? Well, I, I, I think you're right. I think you'll see a situation where, you know, teams will see an opportunity where they're, the great, the great team will, the bad, the so-so team will see an opportunity to steal a championship. So I think that you will see, uh, you know, it's now a sprint instead of a marathon. So I do think that you'll see uh, some chances taken by the teams that wouldn't necessarily uh, be a team that uh, would, in you know, over 162, would have an opportunity. Now that doesn't mean Miami all of a sudden thinks they're going to championship, but the mid-red team, you know, uh, whoever that might be, the Reds, the White Sox. Um, Texas, you know, that kind of franchise, I think they might see an opening uh, to put a little something together. Listen, um, it, it won't be, I'm not sure how I'm going to feel about it. You know, if I have a White Sox Diamondback World Series, am I going to consider it legit? I'm not sure. I got to see how the season plays itself out. I mean, theoretically, I know that the Yankees and the Dodgers, I know who the best teams are going into the year. And all of a sudden, if I have a playoff scenario where it's the White Sox, Diamondbacks, Reds, you know, I'm going to have that. And the Yankees don't play well, and they go 41 and 41, and somehow don't make the playoffs. Now, that's going to hurt the legitimacy of it. You know, last year the Nationals at 19 and 31 would not make it in an 82 game scenario. They needed more games to sort of have the cream rise to the top. So let let me see how that develops. Uh, I'll be happy to have baseball. There's no question about it. Uh, but the legitimacy of the title is interesting. And the same thing goes for the other two sports, especially the NBA. I mean, if the Greek gets hurt, am I supposed to make a big deal about, you know, a, a, a team in the East playing in a final that's not the Bucks, Or if LeBron gets hurt or Kawhi, 
and it's Oklahoma City in the final. Is that going to be a legitimate championship in the NBA? So uh, th- there is some situations with the three-month gap, with the shortened season in baseball, with the injury aspect in the NBA. NHL, the, you know, the hot goalie goes a long way. But in the NBA and, the N- and Major League Baseball, it will be interesting to see if the sports fan who follows this religiously, if he's got a weird postseason or he's got a weird Final Four, if he's going to consider it legitimate. i got to see how it plays out before I give you an answer on that. You know, what we've been trying to do here is bring on familiar voices to make people feel better since we're, we're still in lockdown here in Northern California. Of course, your voice is so familiar to all of our baseball fans because of your great work on SiriusXM and also on MLB Network. We always appreciate the time. Be well, be safe, and we'll talk to you soon. Always a pleasure, Chris. Thanks for the kind words. Thanks so much, pal. That guy is the man. Love having him on the program. Also, Jim Bowden, he's not easy to get. I'm just going to tell you that. He's not easy to get. But when you get him, you know, I've been saying, you know, we've seen a lot of ex-players get into the broadcasting business. We've seen people in the media. But just recently, we've been seeing these guys who are former GMs, and they see the game different than we do. Here is Jim Bowden. Well, now joining us, he is he's phenomenal. Um Longtime general manager, now turned media guy, and works for ESPN. Works for the Athletic, and there's been a been kind of a little bit of a bombshell going on because uh, the players' union may not be negotiating. In all fairness, an email popped up, and Joel Sherman from the New York Post got it, where it's saying that. The players' union knew that if they're not playing in front of fans, they'd have to renego. They were willing to renegotiate again on the money. That's not what Tony Clark's been saying. That's not what players have been saying. But supposedly, this has been negotiated before. There's a bombshell. Here is Jim Bowden. Yeah, we definitely need to get baseball back, and it's not going to be easy to get it done. But I did like the approach that baseball, when they actually gave the first proposal to the players, it was just about the safety. It was about the testing. It was about social distancing. It was about the mask and the sanitizing and the hotels and the airplanes and the airports we're going to use and the geographic schedule and the 82-game schedule and the universal DH and all of the things that are important to players but also things that can be agreed upon pretty easily. And there was a conference call that took place on Monday with about 130 players and Tony Clark. And the players came away from that really positive. They, they gave some ideas back. They gave some counterpoints back uh, for the union to, you know, come back to, to baseball with. But there seemed to be a sense of optimism that there would be a season from the players. Now, we say that and then we get the elephant in the room, which is not the negotiating table, but through leaked information of the media, we, we have a situation where, the owners believe that they can renegotiate how much they pay the salaries because there won't be fans in the stands. The union believes they have an agreement that the players will be, be, be paid a prorated amount regardless if there are fans in the stands. And the smoking gun you're referring to is a New York Post article by Joel Sherman, of which Joel Sherman uh, basically got a copy of an email that the commissioner's office has sent the players confirming the fact that hey, if there's no fans in the stands, we have the right to renegotiate the deal. 
But none of that has been brought to the negotiating table. So as you know, that's going to be probably the biggest barrier. But if baseball can agree to the safety concerns and the 82-game schedule and the universal DH and the geographic scheduling and how spring training is going to burn, if they can get all that approved and then we leave it up to money, both sides are going to find a way to do this one way or the other because both sides are going to lose more if there's no season than if there is a season. You know, you mentioned about, you know, everybody needs to be six you know, feet away from each other. And we're talking about social distancing and how most clubhouses are, are not built that way. If we're going to have, you know, whether it's 50 players or whatever the number is going to be. And as I was listening to yesterday, I was thinking about, you know, you, you look at the Coliseum, you could easily build a makeshift clubhouse in the parking lot of the Coliseum, if not use the old Raiders, because the Raiders are gone. You can use their locker room. I was just kind of spinning my wheels here thinking, you know, you may not be able to do it in most clubhouses, but everybody's got these parking lots. Could you build a makeshift clubhouse outside of the ballpark for home and away teams to be able to do the social distancing? Yeah, it could be done. There's no doubt. The, the question is, is it practical? But, you know, there's no doubt you mentioned the Raiders locker room. Of course you can use that. You know, the, the problem is, you know, what are you going to do? Put your eight starters in your regular clubhouse and then your pitchers are going to go in the auxiliary uh, clubhouse in the parking lot. And then the other position players are going to be in the Raiders locker room. And then the taxi squad is going to be, uh, I don't know, uh, we'll find some place, maybe in some, maybe some food place upstairs. I don't know. I mean, the point is that you're making and it's true. It can be done. And baseball wants to do it, and it's going to be difficult. You know, what I look at, though, is realistically, do you really think this is going to work like that? Like, I would suggest to people, look around the country and watch the people that are going to restaurants or picking up food. How many have masks? How many don't? How many are social distancing? How many don't? We're talking about 1,500 players that are ages 20 to 40 males, and we're expecting them to play games on the road go back to the hotel and not leave the hotel to go for a walk. Don't have a dinner with friends. Don't be with anyone except the immediate family until the season is over. Is that really realistic? Most of us have been, been quarantined. Most of us are, are doing the right thing and carrying it out. The question is, are you going to be able to carry it out all 1500 players for the entire season? You know, I question whether or not you can, but let's look at it this way in a positive way. How many major league baseball players have tested positive for COVID-19? To our knowledge, none, zero, zippo. In theory, if that is true, and when they do the testing when the players arrive and, and everyone tests negative, if that is true and it plays out that way, then there should be no reason sharing balls, bats, try, trying the best to social distance. You can't give it to each other. So, so if, in fact, you stay quarantined with just your teammates and no one in that pool of people have it, then in theory, baseball should get through it. But the key is going to be the self-discipline and the team discipline to make sure that they can stay healthy because baseball can't come back, start it, and then get a, then all of a sudden have some positive tests and a pandemic because that would absolutely destroy everything they're trying to accomplish. You know, one thing we haven't heard about, and you know a lot about this, when you start talking about a trading deadline, let's say we have an 82-game season, how do you think a trading deadline would work 
it, when you have a, a pandemic and you have a shortened season, because there's going to be teams who still want to move guys, rebuild their 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 farm system. How, how do you see a potential trading deadline working? If we start July 1st, and if we're going to run the playoffs and World Series as we have in the past, and we're going to play an 82-game schedule, then I anticipate the trade deadline will be August 31st. Now, that's not something that I've gotten inside information from, but that is what I believe is what they'll do. They'll move it from July 31st to August 31st, which will be two months of baseball, and it'll be past the halfway point, and I think that would be fair. Um, for the teams for this year alone. Now, could it end up being August 15th? Absolutely. I just feel like baseball will move it a month and make it August 31st. Do you think we'll see any minor league baseball this year? You're not going to see any minor league baseball. So what you're going to see is you're going to see 30-man rosters instead of 26-man rosters. That's on a daily basis. And you're going to see a taxi squad of 20 other players, which are 50, which teams can use any way, way they want outside of the fact that 40 of them have to be the 40-man roster players, and then 10 can be minor league players. Now it gets complicated because there's going to be some top prospects that a team's going to want to maybe carry one or two top prospects so they don't use, lose a year of development in their pool of 50 on the taxi squad but are not going to want to put them on the 30-man roster. Teams that are in contention are going to really be concerned about, hey, I really can't afford to carry that prospect. I better have the best 50 because I can't control how many injuries I'm going to have. I can't control how many players are going to have down years, and I better protect myself. So the strategy of making sure you're carrying the right 50 and then the, the daily rigors decision of what 30 am I going to run in my pool is going to be extremely important. And, of course, the other issue is, you got to make sure you have, have enough pitching because you're not going to have a farm system to go get pitching. So if you're sitting there with 50 players, you're going to want more than 50% of them to be pitchers. Now, I don't know if that number is 26, 28, or 30, but you want to be aggressive to make sure you have enough arms. Because the other thing, too, is with a two-and-a-half or three-week spring training, starters aren't going to be stretched out. And if, in fact, they go to two uh, seven-inning doubleheaders and they do them once a week or once every other week, then you're going to have to sit there and have six-man rotations, perhaps, because they're going to try to cram in as many games as they can. So you better make sure you have enough starters. And if the starters can only go three, four, five innings, then you better have enough relievers. So it's going to be a very, very fascinating, interesting strategy how GMs and managers are going to manage these rosters. And I do think that you will see some type of uh, instructional league for prospects in the fall. As long as the pandemic doesn't come back, there isn't a surge. I think that is possible. But I do think you're going to see some elite prospects that are going to be in the pool of 50 because teams just don't want to lose a year of development, which you really don't want to when you have assets of that level. Let's end on this because down to spring training, we talk so much about Jesus Lazardo and A.J. Puck and about innings and how many times they're going to pitch. And you know Billy Bean, and you know the A's as well as anybody. Uh, now, now that we're probably going to look at, we're not going to worry about innings limit for our star young pitchers, what chance do you give the A's in a shortened season? Well, I pick them to win the AL West before the pandemic. So that was my prediction. I have them beating the Astros anyway. 
I like their chances even more in an 82-game schedule. Because sometimes when you have a team like Oakland with a younger rotation or a rotation that's coming back from injury or a rotation that doesn't have history of the 32 starts and the 200 innings that teams like the Nationals um, have or the teams like the Astros have with Verlander and Greinke, those teams usually have an advantage at the end of the year. You take that advantage away when you're playing 82 games. That advantage goes, okay, because now we're looking at 15 starts and 100 innings. So that really bodes well for Oakland. Oakland, as, as you know, an elite defensive team, incredible power. Lazardo's my pick for American League Pitcher of the Year. Absolutely love this guy. I think he's the real deal. I think he's legit. Um, and I, you know, I think this is the year that the A's go by um, the Houston Astros and win the division. And I'm going to predict them when we have the 82-game schedule. So excited about this A's team. Well, I got to tell you, you know, ever since you started being in the media, as we all know, you were the youngest GM at the time. And, and, and the great work that you've done, whether, you know, Cincinnati and uh, Montreal to Washington. But what you do in the media – and by the way, it's very, you know, back in the day, we never got, you know, people who were who are general managers never really went into the media. And what you have done is so interesting and so groundbreaking because you remember back in the day, GMs, they always just end up going to other teams or becoming consultants. They never went to media. What you have done is, is really groundbreaking. Well, I've really enjoyed this part of it. And the reason I went into the media uh, is I just didn't have any interest in the grind of the seven days, 18 hours uh, a day, seven days a week that it takes to be a GM again. And I didn't want to be a consultant. And I thought this kind of role is fun because you get to be involved with 30 teams. You know, you get involvement with 30 GMs, 30 managers, 30 front offices. And, and it's a lot different than when you're competing against 29 other teams because on this side of things, you're on the same team. And one of the things I've tried to do is have the niche of the GM's angle because GMs view the game differently than a player. They view them differently than a manager, differently than a fan, differently than most media people. And so what I tried to bring to the table is just that different lens of looking at the game. And then, of course, having the contacts and insight uh, to the teams directly and being able to bring inside information to the fans, I think is important. So you know, it is a different kind of role than the media was used to, but I certainly think there's a place in baseball now and in the future for the GM's kind of view of the game. Jim, you're the best. We always appreciate it. Take care down there in South Florida, and hopefully we'll talk to you soon when we get this when we get this season started. I look forward to it. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I appreciate it. Eduardo Perez is in his house in Florida doing KBO games. It's not easy. And the cool thing is, is when we're doing Google Meets, I was able to see his setup. So ESPN went into his house, did this whole setup. And just for them bringing us baseball is so cool. Here is the former player turned broadcaster, Eduardo Perez. Well, we want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on A's Cast Live. Of course, last time we saw you was at the wild card game. And I got to tell you, for baseball fans, thank you. Thank ESPN for this coverage of the KBO because just giving us something live, something to watch and entertain us has been fantastic. It really has. I mean, it's, it's been fantastic for me. I mean, uh, let alone having to get up at the wee hours of the morning, in my case, a 3.30 wake-up call and 
and um, to get ready for the 5:30 game and and the logistics of it, I got to give a lot of credit to uh, to everyone behind the scenes that have made this happen at ESPN. I mean, the creativity at the beginning, a lot of people were skeptical. Um, what do you think? Should we? Should we not? Um, you know, they they were able to reach out to the SPO network over there in Korea, and and they were uh, nice enough, uh, obviously with. Uh, some economic standpoints also to benefit them, but nice enough to at least give us a signal for us to be able to do what we do. And it's been a lot of fun. You know, we recently talked to Daniel Kim and also former A's pitcher Dan Straley about how it's working. And the great thing, I think, for us in Major League Baseball is the fact that over there in Korea, it is working. It's giving us a template of how we get started here in the United States. It really is. And, and um, you know, I think all eyes are on that. I talked to a lot of coaches, a lot of front office personnel. I'm interested in knowing what we've been able to find out via the interviews and everything like that. And we're trying to, I mean, we are working tirelessly. This isn't just about the game for us. This is about being able to um, to educate the, the rest of the country when it comes to what we are living through right now. They are, they are obviously a few weeks ahead of us. And, uh, and they've been very successful, at least in the country of South Korea, with what they've done. Um, and we're just trying to learn. We're trying to learn the daily routine of what the players do. The players are asking, um, what can we do? And I know all eyes are on, they know all eyes are on them. And we are what uh, visually people in this country are, are seeing. So we want to make sure that we have um, all the dots, uh, all the dots, and t all the eyes covered with all the dots on it, and the T's crossed, and whatever it may be. But there's a lack of sleep going on, as you can tell. That I can't even dot my eyes or cross my T's. <laughs> well, hey, uh, what you're doing for us is awesome. And you know, talking to Dan Straley, where you know, here in America, you're not taught to be this super entertainer and pump your fist and look at the other dugout. They encourage that for their pitchers. Of course, the bat flips are absolutely epic. It's a showman's game. What have you really noticed while covering the KBO? You said something that was, uh, you know, that catches my mind every time I say it. It catches me, and it's a game. It's a game. They're playing the game. They're not working it. Um, they're emotional about it. The pitchers will be emotional about a pitcher. They miss it. Uh, the, the hitters are going to celebrate every time they barrel the ball, they lift it, equaling a home run to it. And um, if you're going to get offended by it, you're, you're not in the right league. This is about uh, celebrating, and I think there's a lot of celebrating to be done. Unfortunately for us, we can't celebrate um, a full stadium uh, over there because they say, and everyone has said it, that with the, what makes – that league go is their fans, the way they celebrate, the tailgating that happens before and after. Uh, the, uh, you know, every time they score a run, even if they're down 14 to 2 or, or 18 to 1, they're still celebrating to the last out because for them, it's a release from their work and, and being able to have and spend time with their families and enjoy it. So um, I'm looking forward to that. I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm very hopeful that. When they get to open their gates and little by little, it'll it'll become even more uh, entertaining. And hopefully by that time, we've already had started baseball here in the United States. 
Yeah, I, I've been with the A's twice over in Japan, and, and we always get to play against uh, Japanese teams, and they have their band, and every guy who walks up, he's got his own song, and they're chanting the whole time. It's, it's like a college football game. But I'll tell you what, and I asked Dan Straley this, because, you know, we all play college baseball. It's kind of like an inter-squad game against your own teammates, like when you're playing Florida State, where there's nobody in the stands and you're playing a game, and, and – he said, like, after a couple innings, you don't even notice. And, and I'm watching you guys. After a couple of innings, I don't even notice that there's any people in the stands. Come on now. You should have seen that. Did you see yesterday's game with all the mannequins in the background? I no, I didn't cool, see that. All the cutouts. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, you, you know what, though? They, they have at least allowed their, their cheer squad to be above the dugout and uh, continue to cheer the teams on the home teams have. And I think that's uh, that's a plus for what they've been able to do. I think another plus is, and SPO has been able to provide like a nat, uh, the background sound of the game. So we're not just talking like we're in studio, at least at home, you have that feel that there are people there. You still hear them uh, cheer, especially the dugouts are livelier. It reminds me of a lot of when I used to go to the softball games at Florida state, when I was there, you, you see the cheers and, um, yeah, each hitter has their own song, but their dugouts are, are alive and pumping also. And and it, it, it tells you something. They're celebrating that they are playing just like they are in Taiwan, but we're televising these games here in the United States. And, and again, it's a privilege. And I remember when I got the first phone call, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was from the um, from Forbes magazine. They wanted to interview us. And, and the first question was, how does it feel to be the only English-speaking commentator broadcasting a baseball game in the world. I was like, damn, that's real, dude. So that, that was pretty cool. You know, speaking of your time at Florida State, there was that time, you know, you guys with Mike Martin, and then you think about Bobby Bowden, and, and the football team is in the top three uh, every single year, just pumping out NFL guys. You guys were pumping out big leaguers. There was a time where Florida State was so dominant in athletic, it was unbelievable. It, it really was. I got spoiled. And, and uh, a skinny kid coming out of Puerto Rico and not knowing the tradition of the Seminoles, not knowing what it was all about, um, I lucked out. I lucked out that I, I took the phone call. I answered that ring, and, and, and it was Rod Delmonico at the time, the head recruiter of Florida State, um, luring me there. It was the only offer that I had ever received uh, to go to a, a, a school to play baseball. Uh, so uh, I felt privileged. I felt privileged once I, I took my recruiting trip over there and I was like, wait a second, you guys want me to come here and you guys are going to pay part of my scholarship. I'm in, where do I sign up? I would have signed uh, immediately. So, and that's exactly what I did. So it was, it was definitely, um, I lucked out for those three years that I spent in Tallahassee and to this moment, I'm, you know, I'm still grateful for all the friends and, and experiences that I, that, that made me, I'm, who I am right now and developed me into this, into this person that I am now. You know, we've been celebrating the A's winning three straight World Series, 72, 73, 74. Uh, recently had Joe Morgan on the program. Of course, he's from Oakland. And, you know, you start talking about 72 was the big red machine, you a little kid. But later on, you would be in that clubhouse. When you look back as a little kid and you're walking through that clubhouse, what was that like? I mean, this is a red machine. You know what? It's, it's, uh, it's, <laughs> I'll tell you this. As a kid, you don't know any better. 
you really don't. It's this is the life that I grew up in. Um, this was my dad's work, and it was our hangout. And we would go. We couldn't wait till my dad let's say, okay, we're going to the ballpark. And my brother and I would jump in the car, and there we went. We went to the ballpark to play with the other kids. Um, and and just being around it, we had that winning environment. A lot of credit goes to obviously the talent was there, but Sparky Anderson embraced the kids um, and gave us rules and 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 set barriers for us and, and, and told us what the importance of winning and competing was all about. So at the end of the day, um, uh, during that tenure, you had five kids that ended up going in the first round. You had 12 of us that ended up signing professionally. You had, I think, uh, I believe it's eight or nine of us that made it to the big leagues. Um, and to this day, we're pretty darn close. I mean, Junior called me the other day. Uh, Pete Rose Jr. calls me also. Um, the hit king, Pete Rose, just texted me maybe 30 minutes ago um making a comment about a fly ball in the, in the kbo saying wow what's what's that left fielder doing not rounding the ball getting in front of it getting ready to throw the guy would have never left from second base but just because all those little things i mean the, the memories that we have and uh the the family atmosphere to this day that continues you mentioned joe morgan joe's one of those guys that if he sees that i broadcast something that's wrong on tv He's the first one to call me. Oh, maybe Pete will beat him to it. But um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a family, and it's still, to this day, uh, a family atmosphere with the Big Red Machine um, is to our family. And as a matter of fact, when I broadcast games, I have a Big Red Machine ball right next to me, signed by all of them. You know, when we were going through that World Series, you know, the greatness, because, you know, you're talking about Hall of Famers across the board on both teams, the A's and the Cincinnati Reds. And, you know, there were two guys that were in their 30s that were, you know, we talk of the core guy. It was Pete Rose and Burt Campanero. But other than that, everybody was in their prime. And that's what I think when, we're, when the Reds actually start winning in 75, 76, that core was so strong, truly one of the great cores in history. Yeah, it, it really was. Um, and and you look at, you, you end up seeing what, what it all meant to. And, and again, in the seventies, don't count Pete that much out. He's 79 right now. I'm starting to, I'm, you made me think because my dad is uh, about to turn 78 tomorrow, as a matter of fact. And, and uh, to be able to, uh, to get those guys actually growing up together in the organization via the minor leagues, they knew how to win together. They knew how to lose together. They knew what they needed to compete at the major league level. Um, they all had a role. And because they all knew what their role was, um, it was it was a lot easier for them to uh, to come in and capitalize. I remember a story that my dad and and Pete were telling me was that Sparky Anderson called them into the office and 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 told them and said, "Hey, we have a chance to make a trade with the Houston Astros for a little guy, um, uh, you know, a young player, Joe Morgan." And um, they're like, well, "So what are we waiting for?" They're like, "Well." I don't know if you'll fit in well or not to the clubhouse. And they're like, we don't care about the clubhouse. We'll take care of that. We know he'll, he'll help us win. And when they did, and it was, uh, it was a memorable two years of, I remember celebrating with the Reds in their, uh, in the caravan after they won in 75 and 76 being the Red Sox and the Yankees, two historic teams. So that right there set, set aside the Cincinnati Reds, set them apart from everyone else at that moment. Unfortunately, Bob Housen had to trade my dad away for Woody Fryman to the Montreal Expos. And um, that was pretty much the, the beginning of the end for the, for the Reds dominating. 
Yeah, we were just kids, and you remember, you're like, man, what, Pete Rose is now a Philly, and your dad's an Expo? It's like, what the heck are they doing? Yeah. I mean, it all changed, and it changed pretty quick, and, and you know, that was uh, free agency at its infancy. Uh, the, the money started going up a little, uh, little by little, and, you know, players that were historically bound to organizations, that was uh, pretty much a rarity. And in Pete's case, I know he would have wanted to start and finish with the Cincinnati Reds, but it took him to Philadelphia and from there to the Expos and then back to, uh, back to Cincinnati. Let's end on this. You know, we're, we're seeing all these guys on Twitter. They're working out. They're throwing. They're hitting. How long do you think it would really take if we say, okay, start date is July 1st. How long do you think it would take pitchers, hitters, and everybody to be ready for a start date? Wow. Um, a lot of people say, if you ask the position players, they say, give me two weeks and I'm ready. I, I don't think so. I think it's going to take at least three if you expand the rosters when it comes to, for the pitchers. We have to make sure that we cannot assume that the pitchers have been doing everything they've had to do to get ready for a season. Um, this, is, this is a power league, and that's one thing that a lot of people can't get the KBO that we are broadcasting right now compared and, and try to confuse it with what's going on here. We have a lot of guys that throw in the, in, you know, in the upper 90s. It's max effort what's being taught here. A lot of these guys are in the big leagues because they throw hard. It's not because they can execute a two-seam fastball in the corner or a slider down in a way to get the swing and miss. Um, that being said, we have to make sure those arms are as healthy as can be. If not, we're going to end up with a lot of guys, even more, um, hurt because of it. So I would say three weeks, and that's pushing it, and that would be with a 28-man roster to be able to do it. I've always said, Let's have a 35-man roster at the major league level, and then let's condense that to seven guys out of that day game roster, meaning you'll protect seven arms and maybe a position player or two from getting or injuring themselves a little bit more and not forcing the manager to have to use them because they have to win that game. Let's face it, this is going to be an abbreviated season. And um, because it's going to be an abbreviated season, it's going to be a lot of pressure on the managers to be able to win and win fast. This is going to be like a well, winter ball where, you, where you're going to be under the microscope and if your players do not react right out of the get-go, you're, you're going to be left behind no matter how much talent you have on that squad. Well, I, I can't say it enough. I, I, you know, For all baseball fans, thank you to you and ESPN for what you guys are doing because you're giving us some relief and giving us some baseball, something to watch. The classic games have been great, but it's it's a, a lot of fun just to be able to turn on the TV at 10 o'clock here in California and watch, watch, watch a little baseball. Thank yeah. you so much for what you're doing. We truly appreciate it. And uh, get some sleep. No, that's overrated. Sleep is overrated. I have Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I'll tell you this. 12 hours guaranteed Thursday night to Friday. Guaranteed. Hey, you take, you take what you take care and be well down in Florida. You got it. Stay easy up there in, uh, in the Bay Area. Just like Eduardo Perez, Boog Shambi is doing the same thing, calling KBO games from his place in New York. Boog is one of the top play-by-play -play men in all of baseball, and he works for ESPN. Here is Boog Shambi. Well, it's great to have Boog back here on the program on A's Cast Live. Not only is he a superstar broadcaster in the United States, he's now become a big league in Korea with Korean Baseball Organization. Boog, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. I, I don't think I'm, I'm there yet, but 
there would be nothing more than delight me than to become a monster superstar in Korea. Yeah, who would ever thought from your place in New York City you'd be doing Korean baseball play-by-play? I didn't see it coming. I'm not going to lie. I did not. Uh, I did not anticipate this as a possibility. So it's uh, it's pretty wild. But for you, getting back to doing play-by-play, it's what you do. It's it's in your DNA. How, how, for you personally, what was it like to get back on the air and call baseball, even if it is uh, halfway across the world? Yeah, I, I will tell you that this has elements of what I do, but it's so different and challenging in terms of knowledge of players and you know, calling what you see inside the box, whereas I'm so used to being at the field and looking at the field. Um, so it's been fun being on the air, but it's not, it's certainly nowhere near apples to apples to what I, to what I normally do. And, you know, there's, look, you get lineups 35 minutes before first pitch. We had one game that 15 minutes before the, we were supposed to go to air our game got rained out and they said, you're going to do a different game. So, and then, you know, we don't have people there. So you, you know, uh, you come back from commercial and you're looking at the pitcher on the mound and he's a righty still, but you can't read his Korean name. And I can't tell whether it's a five or a 45 or a 35 and I'm already talking so, and then I'm realizing this is a new pitcher and pinch hitters come up and you don't realize they're pinch hitters because the shot is the shot. So it's, it's challenging in terms of, it's not quite as simple as just calling the action because, you know, to me calling the action is talking to people about what you know about the pitcher on the mound, the, the hitter at the plate and, from a knowledge base, we don't know that much. And then there is the actual identification of fly ball left field. And, you know, it's a 9-3 game, and LG has replaced Yunsu Kim in left field, and I don't know that. So it's it's different. Yeah, it, it, it's kind of got the the Olympic model to it, which a lot of people don't realize is that a lot of the play by play on all the different networks during the Olympics are are done from here. Like like yep. Costas yep. over the years or Tarico and Al Michaels, they'll be at whatever foreign country. But a lot of the broadcasters, they give you the play by play. And a lot I, I remember the last summer Olympics, a lot of what was done here, NBC in San Francisco. Yeah, in San Francisco and in Stanford, absolutely. So it's uh, it's just different. Um, it's uh, it's it's definitely been an adventure, and it's been fun and funny, and uh, and at a basic level, it's also just really cool to to be watching baseball. Yeah, and I I, I like I like the swagger. I like the flair. I yeah. like bat flips. I like the fist pumps. I like that they understand that it's about entertainment and no one's going to yeah. wear one in the ribs because they're having a good time. I, I, totally I, I agree. Our players are watching it. I totally agree with you. Um, I think our sport is moving more and more in that direction, but 
uh, it's not there yet. But I'm I'm totally with you. I like it. So we've got a couple former A's over there. We've had Dan Straley on the program. Uh, Matt Williams, who's managing, was just on Bob Melvin's staff, and he's managing over there. And it seems pretty simple. It's you get up in the morning, you take your temperature, you send the, the reading to the trainer, you show up to the ballpark, you take your temperature, you go out and play. They don't want you spitting. They don't want you touching each other. It seems pretty simple. Do you think this concept of what's going on in Korea could happen here with Major League Baseball? Well, it's simple because as a country, they did a much better job of mitigating and their testing procedures were much more immediate and more extensive than ours were. So I think that that, that's where it's it's not quite as simple. And they've had a little bit of a, you know, a spike recently in Seoul, but it's not... um, I think the other thing too is you ha- it, you know there are three times as many teams and players in the United States. I, I think to for MLB to start back up and not do asymptomatic testing isn't realistic. Not to mention the fact that you have a players' association and they would want to protect the health of their players. So I, it's it's not like that's not the model because. As a country, they did a better job than we did um, at mitigating the spread of the disease at the beginning. Um, so I, I don't know how much there really is to be gleaned from what they're doing because they're coming from a different starting spot than we are. Well, then we can look at other American sports. As, as NASCAR started up this past weekend, we had a golf event, which golf to me is you want to talk about distancing. It's the ultimate distance sports. Football looks like it's about to open up. How much do you think baseball is going to be watching everybody else? And hopefully that can give them some confidence. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think it's I, I think that it's. You know, the problem is baseball is going to look at everything. Sure. I, I just think that the problem is this is, uh, you know, multi-layered in terms of the players wanting to feel, you know, again, be- because you're talking about a virus and the transmissibility, it, the players aren't just worried about and probably not even that, ver- that worried about themselves. It's about them getting it and carrying it to someone that they love who is vulnerable. So, like, that's one of the things that they're concerned about um and then so so they're worried about health protocols and then they're also you know there's the economic component of it which you know is in in you know with the amount of people we have unemployed in this country um you know it, it it's not exactly the most palatable thing to be discussing but it's just reality you know in a shortened season you know, that's the one great thing about 162 games is that teams get exposed. But in right. a half a season, you may not get as, as exposed. And you might be able to bring young guys up and not have to baby the young guys and have innings limits. If you could think of a couple dark horse teams, we know who the good teams are, and I like to think right. the A's are one of them. But who would you see yeah. as kind of some dark horse teams that you'd go, you know, in an 82-game season, I, I right. give them a puncher's chance. It's funny. I asked that question to someone the other day. Um, I and I'm trying to think who I asked it to. Did I ask Buster? Um, I don't know that I that 
the A's are definitely one of the one of the really good teams. So I I don't know. So is there? Yeah, it's like the way I think I put it was: is there a team that you know is might be able to you know to to hang in there because it's a sprint and not a marathon, or more of a sprint and less of a marathon? Um, I haven't I haven't put together a team that I that I feel like that applies to as of yet. I'd need to probably think about it a little bit more deeply, but I, I would say at least on the surface, my take would be, um, you know, I would stick with, with the good teams and then, and then adjust. But I, um, you know, it, I'm, I'm not sure that there's a team that comes to mind for me that with a shortened season might have a little better chance. You're in New York. I don't know how much information you're getting, but obviously the Yankees were going into the season banged up again, just like they were last year. How's the health of some of the players? Have you guys gotten any information on where the Yankees are? Yeah, I mean, I think it, like at this point, both Judge and Stanton would be ready to play, um, at least as I understand it. So that's that's the you know the best thing that I could tell you as far as uh, as far as the Yankees are concerned but yeah you're not I mean you're certainly not uh, you know not getting those daily updates that you're that you're used to you know I was recently in New York I was there in December last December I was there in February and when you walk around the streets of New York and the, the amount of humanity that is there and to now you know see shots from the streets and there's nobody on the streets, hardly any cars. I don't know if you're able to get out, but if you are, what is it like walking yeah, around yeah. New York city and nobody's on the streets? Yeah. I mean, it's changing ever so slightly by the day. And obviously with the weather that factors in as well, which unfortunate is unfortunate just because, you know, it's either serious or it's not. It's not. It's serious, except for hey, it's a really nice day. Um, but I will say that the best example that I could give you, you, you know, you mentioned humanity. Well, it's the pedestrian traffic and the vehicular traffic, and the combination of both, you know, makes New York one of the noisiest cities out there. And I was coming out of my building the other day, and I live in the heart of Manhattan. And I was talking on the phone with a friend who was in California and he interrupted me and said, man, all I hear are birds. And I'm on the street, like I'm on third Avenue. And, and he, you know, he was like, gosh, he's like, where are you? And I'm like, I'm just on the street. But that's the, that's what it is, is that it's so, you know, it, at times it's felt, it felt and looked a little bit like I am legend, you know, the Will Smith movie, but yeah, that was just the other day at three in the afternoon where normally buses, cars, people are everywhere and making noise. But instead all he could hear is the background to our phone call was, you know, birds chirping. Yeah. You hear more honking of horns in New York city than any other yeah. city. And it's like, constant, and it's just to think that you hear birds, that's just crazy. Yeah. Birds. And then the other thing, you know, that was drastic for a while that's still there is, you know, for a, probably a month stretch, it was just so eerily quiet, except you'd hear sirens every, you know, 
15, 20 minutes. Book, thank you so much for the time, and thank you for what you guys are doing to give us some type of baseball to watch. <laughs> it's, a, it's been a lot of fun to watch these guys, and uh, I'm staying up late to watch it, and you're entertaining us, and that means a lot. So thank you very much. I really appreciate you saying that. Um, doing my best, and I mean, I love I love getting a chance to broadcast baseball, and hopefully we'll have Major League Baseball back, and uh, yeah, hopefully get a look at, a, at a, another really good Oakland A's team. So um, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. All those interviews were a lot of fun during a pandemic. We want to thank Chris, Mad Dog Russo, Jim Bowden, Eduardo Perez, and Boog Shambi. Now back to A's Cast, powered by TuneIn. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team.